Have you ever gotten your message lost in translation? Launched a well-thought-out content on social media only to get lost in the noise? Welcome to the Moving Beyond Acronyms Podcast. We are here to help you with practical tools to find your voice, craft shareable content, stand out in the marketplace, expand your tribe, and convert followers into ambassadors or customers. I'm Torrent, your host, a message master that's helped leaders, entrepreneurs, and businesses ignite their message with lasting impact. Each week, we will go behind the scenes to share real and deep conversations with the most prominent message masters on how they took an idea and crafted content that have trended to the stratosphere, boosted the bottom line, and improved the world around them. Now, let's get started. Welcome to the Moving Beyond Acronyms. I'm really excited to have Mark Klosterman here, who has for 20 years been a brand specialist. He's the best-selling author of Future Proof Your Brand and the founder of Vim Group, which is a Dutch startup that is now globally recognized authority in brand management and implementation. So welcome, Mark. How are you today? Thank you. My pleasure. Yeah, it's another beautiful day uh, despite COVID. Another beautiful day in in Netherlands. That's wonderful. So why I have you on is I'm really excited about is that you were an accountant that became a brand specialist. You've been part of a startup in Holland or Netherlands, and it's grown to be globally recognized. So tell us about yourself. How did that journey happen? Yeah, well, it started maybe when I was 18. I started to uh, work at KPMG. Um, instead of going to university, I, I trained as a chartered auditor at KPMG uh, next to my job there because we didn't have a lot of money at home. So this was a way to make money from 18. And then it took like uh, eight years, uh, nine years to, to graduate as a chartered auditor. Yeah, I think my, my parents also thought it was a very good education at the time. And that's how you, some, something you could make money with, actually. Yeah. So then you go from accounting to branding how did that happen because it's, it's kind of different and I think this was really interesting with you as a brand expert your brand expert on kind of the equity of brands that's one of your expertise so how did you go from accounting to branding yeah I think that the journey of life is about coincidence I met one of the founders of our company at the time uh, which was called Nijkamp and Nijboer at the time very Dutch uh, name that's why we changed it after uh, some time but um he said, well, it must be very dull working at KPMG. Why don't you come to a really exciting a company that we have, it's thriving and it's growing and you could be the CFO. And um, at the time, I was quite eager. And uh, my boss at the time, he was thinking about giving me a promotion. But of course, I thought it was never fast enough. So I just I jumped, I jumped ship. <laughs> I left KPMG <laughs> and I joined this uh, small company. And I was used to working with a lot of bigger companies uh, uh, in auditing. And then it was this smaller, thriving company in, yeah, that was working on changing identities for companies. And um, I started off as a CFO, but uh, there was a very entrepreneurial spirit. And the founders, they really had a lot of ideas. And we bought other companies and we got into real estate. We bought an engineering company. We, we set up offices in, in Canada, joint venture in London. And yeah, the sky was the limit. Of course, not everything went great. And this is when I yeah, kind of transferred from being the CFO to one of the directors, because if there was a problem with the growth, uh, I would be uh, sent forward <laughs> instead <laughs> of the founders to, to pick up the dirty work. Yeah, that's, of course, also how I got in touch with clients uh, due to fast growth of our business. 
I remember that I had to go to Heineken and DHL at the time, and I had to tell them, yeah, I can see this hasn't gone really well. Um, <laughs> if you allow me, I'll come back in a few weeks, and I'll, I wouldn't leave any stone unturned internally. Yeah, the result was, of course, if you then put things right, you earn a tremendous amount of equity and trust with people. Because I was fairly, I was under 30 at the time. And you just take over like, okay, we've seen a lot of things off rail. Now this guy is putting it back on the rail. And that means that I, I started to establish relationships with senior people in branding and, and communication and marketing from a very young age, just by the, by the doing, trying to do right. That got me into the, the world of marketing and branding. And gradually, uh, yeah, got the opportunity to then run the business. And uh, yeah, somewhere in the uh, mid 2000s and 2005, we then bought the business from the founders by a management buyout with the help of uh, private equity. So that's how I lost my way into yeah, marketing and branding and communication. That's so fun. It's all about coincidences in life, isn't it? And uh, yeah. what I'd love for you to talk about, which we talked about a little bit earlier, was about how did the company actually get started? From the founder. Well, yeah, that's a, I think it's a, I'm, I'm telling a story quite often. So one of the founders called Eric Nijkamp, he was selling paint for Axel Nobel to fleet owners. And the fleet owners had to respray, uh, repaint uh, the fleet of truck due to a name change or a change of logo. If you understand the dynamics of uh, re- respraying uh, trucks, you have to first check whether there's damage on a truck then it has to go to a body shop to be repaired before you can do the spray paint and apply decals. So at the time, we, we found out that it was like 135 steps, consecutive steps, to, to respray and repaint and um, put new decals on a truck. So Eric was pretty much fed up with this long process because it meant that he couldn't sell the paints because the clients couldn't get the logistics in place. So at some point, he was so fed up that he said, well, let me just, I will charge uh, an extra percentage on the paint and then I will do all the logistics management and let's get on with it. I will take that concern away from you. So clients gave him that work. So Axel Nobel then was doing this work, but they didn't like the risk profile and they thought that he should have focused on the selling of the paint. So um, yeah, he quit his job and uh, started doing it for himself. And then he bumped into this, this other guy which was Bert Nijboer, and he was a competitor, basically, because Bert was selling decals. And, of course, Bert was telling everybody that you should put decals on a truck that was more efficient and, and better. And Eric was selling paint and telling everybody it was better to do the paint. So that's how they got together. And then uh, Bert was, was already thinking about the future, and he noticed that every time this was about changing the name or the identity. And they then started telling clients, well, Apparently, you're changing the name. What about uh, the signage on the roof? And the client would go, yeah, that needs to be done as well. And uh, what about uh, the business cards and the collateral? And uh, uh, that uh, you had CD-ROMs at that time with uh, the brand guidelines on it. So this is how we, and basically they, in, in the first seven years, emerged the business from a project management business in respraying identities on trucks to a full-fledged uh, brand implementation, visual identity implementation business, if you wish. So that's basically how it yeah, came to fruition, really from the lower end of the value chain, gradually moving up in the value chain. And that's something, of course, we've been continuing uh, to do over the years. That's so interesting you talk about because I'm right now in Utah and I, I got, went to my first rodeo two weeks ago and I saw <laughs> the cows. But what was interesting was, and I think this is where I'm so fascinated with rebranding, 
how, because it's a challenge because when you do a cow and you're branding them the X and then suddenly say if a cat, if another rancher buys up the cattle and it's going to be branded TD, how do you go from X to TD? Right. And so when yeah. you're actually talking about that with the whole founding of your company, you're really understanding the logistical nightmare. It can be to go in a whole rebranding process. Mm-hmm. And so for you, what makes a successful rebranding? And kind of when should you do a rebranding? And do you really yeah. need to do a rebranding? Yeah, yeah. Well, of course, branding comes really from stamping a brand on, on cattle. I think even from Norway, originally, the word brand or brander comes from that. But I mean, yeah, there's so many things to say about rebranding and, and doing it right. And let's first talk about why you would do it. Mostly you be do great. it because companies come together organizations come together, you have two names, what do you do? Then there is reasons, uh, I mean, one of our clients is Volkswagen, and we've been helping them for the last two years with their repositioning. Of course, they had a lot of trouble in the past with scandals, whilst the whole automotive world is moving into the world of electrification. So they uh, decided to really steer in that direction. They will bring out a whole array of new cars. And at some point, you you, you can then have the desire to express those type of changes through the way you look and feel uh, through the whole brand experience. So that's another reason, repositioning. If you want to change your appearance for adapting to the category, we've, we've seen similar things with so many other clients. Of course, rebranding is also when you sell something off. So if you disinvest or carve something out of a bigger business that carries the name of the business, you need a new name, you need a new logo, and if you, if you go back to the, to the core of what brand is, that's, of course, uh, in M&A, whether it's investment or divestment, the whole principle of being true to the brand is a very difficult thing because, you know, brand is about culture. Companies pay a lot of attention on establishing the right culture and also conveying what their values are through their brand equity to the external audiences like uh, customers and clients. And that's a very difficult thing if you change ownership of companies or yeah, break them up and bring them over to other things for strategic reasons, as we call. So the strategic reasons is always the easy part. That's the rational bit. But then to really keep part of the brand identity and the core of the DNA of organizations to migrate into something else, that's, of course, a very difficult thing. And I mean... Our business is really to help our clients to change and improve the branding, which is basically the easy part because you can buy that with money. I mean, if you if you free up the money and you spend it on all the touch points and, and channels, then you can do that. But, really? Um, yeah. Really, you yeah, really think, I mean, yeah. Okay. You, you, but you do not change the core of the organization then. No. And that's, don't. of course, something that needs to be done internally. And especially if you're in a company, for example, if you're in a private equity-owned company that gets sold every four or five years, maybe it's easy or maybe possible then to keep the DNA of that organization whilst only the ownership changes. But if you get sold from private equity to a strategic buyer, again to private equity, and that happens to companies like in, in telecom or other businesses, you see that, then it's, of course, also very difficult for the, for the customers to keep an understanding of who you are and what you stand for. So in that, because then your DNA kind of changes a little bit when you're buying and selling, and how do you help them stay at the core of their brand? Well, it depends. I mean, if um, 
say an organization gets um, spun off out of something and gets sold into something else. You see that a lot. I mean, when we saw the coming out of the financial crisis for banks, you could see that, uh, for example, our clients as well, they split banking and finance, meaning they put insurance on the stock market and they IPO their business. That's fairly good because then you can really go back to what are the roots of this company, being a conglomerate for banking and finance. It has a history of 50 or 100 years. And if you then go back to the core of the insurance activity, not being tied to banking anymore, then you can go back to the history and take all the good of the history and combine that with the new direction of the company. And that's very easy to do. And we're currently working for a client that gets carved out out a big conglomerate. And the, the business unit that's carved out is like 40,000 people, but it is now becoming part of a global corporation with 450,000 people. Oh, wow. So obviously the new company will say these are our values and we are going to see how we can bring those values and marry them with the values of this business unit. But these are really large businesses and that's where you will have to take a lot of time and a lot of consideration to really create a very dedicated program to really first marry those values and cultures and gradually bring them to the desired situation. But this is not something you do in six months. Cultural change, in my book, also when we talk about that with with our clients and board members, it takes like five years and you need to see it through, not as an external program, but it's something where you have the line management and the HR function really dedicated in a longer-term initiative. And then, of course, that has different challenges to it because uh, most CEOs or most chief HR or chief communication, they do not have a tenure of five years. So, uh, yeah, welcome to the realities of the real world. That's I mean, a challenge. Yeah, because I think yeah. you're right. Because uh, I, when I had to do rebranding, I came into a company that was bought, bought 15 companies up. And then what was interesting, when, when the financial crisis hit, they all went to their old brands. So yeah. you suddenly see them wearing, they have their old cups of the companies. And it was a hard, and I had like banned them from doing that. But we had a unify and we did it through brand story, but it's hard to unify. How do you do the courtship and marriage of this branding process? It takes a lot of psychology, wouldn't it? There's a few things you can do quicker and there's a number of things that always take longer. So to my point, what you can do quicker is if you, if you, for example, adapt the brand expressions of what the company looks like in terms of the naming, the style you apply, you can adapt that to what you want it to be because to my point, that's what you can buy with money. But to win the hearts and minds of the people, it just takes a, a much longer time and a very strong narrative. And that's what you have to consider, especially in the beginning, very well. Where are we? Where do we want to go? How long would it take? And how do we yeah, bridge that gap over time? Because if you go too quick, you will just lose the people. You will lose the trust. People will go like, well, that's great, but I'm not buying it. If I'm not buying it, I'm just not going to do it over time. I mean, I'm Dutch, so I would definitely not, if I don't buy it, I wouldn't do it. But uh, across cultures, I think that's what we see. If we don't trust it and we don't accept it, we just won't play along. So when you're doing these jobs, you're kind of like a, a strategic trusted advisor to the CEO and to them to kind of help them slow down and move fast at the same time. Yeah, well, it varies, of course. So sometimes we're only uh, involved in the execution of uh, brand transformation yeah. programs. 
and for myself, indeed, I'm a lot involved in uh, preliminary discussions around the topic. And I, I like to always talk about, and, and this is especially in the boardroom important, this is not about the fluffy side of brand. This is really about how you orchestrate intangible relationship between an organization and its audiences and then uh, put that into time. So, And that's, of course, where it gets hairy because you have to really develop a clear understanding of what the journey will be, what's the starting point, what's the desire. And that's normally uh, something that is, the, yeah, it's, it's the business side of the branding, I would say, at that level is the most relevant thing because what it is and why you do it is also important. But you can hire a, well, a bunch of, of excellent people for that who can help you with that together with the organization. But uh, if that's the magic, the logic is the thing that takes a lot of time to see it through and to organize, to, to orchestrate, basically. It's interesting you say that because I like what you wrote in the, in, in the recent article about the passion and the, and the logic of a brand, you know, like the emotional and the logic. And, and I think a lot of times we, a lot, we, we hope that the emotional is going to solve a lot. But if you don't have that tied to logic, it, it doesn't really work. It only lasts for a few years, I would say, don't you think? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. It's about the magic and the logic or uh, strategy and implementation. It's similar metaphors, if you ask me. In my book, it's also how I'm wired from who I am. It's always about, okay, someone is better at what is the why and the what. But if it's about how, I can help see that. And it's also, if I look at what we're doing for our clients, how to get things done is, is more the capability. You have to do both those things and, and marry them, actually. Yeah, and I think a lot of times we forget the how. We get so excited about, yes, we got the new logo. Yes, we got this. Yes. But then you have these people that are not really wanting the brand rebranding and are kind of protesting. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, I mean, brand is the most valuable uh, intangible asset of an organization. A brand finance estimated almost 20% of the market capitalization of the 500 biggest companies in the world is brand value. So... The questions we get if we talk about making the business case for, for brand transformation, for example, is always questions, okay, we like the direction. Can you substantiate that in terms of the value that it's created, creating potentially? Or can you substantiate it in the type of budgets we would be looking at in terms of achieving uh, mm. such transformation? So, of course, that's at the boardroom table. At some point, people ask, okay, how much, how long, what type of governance do we need to see this through over time? I mean, people understand that really well. This Again, this is not about the magic, uh, just the magic, which is a profession in itself, and I, I have the largest respect for that. But um, next to that, you also need to have uh, yeah, the oversight of how you're going to do these things. And uh, I mean, we're living in COVID times. I mean, there's so many changing on the short term that uh, it's really important to understand what is changing and then how you will respond to that also as a, as a brand owner. How do you quantify? Do you have a formula on how to quantify a brand value? I'm not aware of that, but I'd love to, if there was a formula I could tell people, this is how much would be value if you invested in a yeah. rebrand or going to the core. I've been um, a non-executive director for a company called Brand Finance for 12 years. They specialize in brand valuation. Um, and like, uh, like Interbrand and Milward Brown do in the world, and also some of the big four accounting firms, they put values on brand. So uh, the formula is pretty is that a simple. Every day. 
Every day? Wow, okay. Yes, every day. For a very specific reason. So since 2005, if you are a company, a listed company, and you buy another company, and you decide to keep the name of that other company. So example, Microsoft has bought LinkedIn a few years ago. So Microsoft has decided to keep the brand LinkedIn. It's still there. So if you do that and you intend to keep the brand, you have to post the value of the brand LinkedIn on the balance sheet of Microsoft. So for that, you have to have a methodology because otherwise you can't. And, and the other interesting thing is that if a company develops its own brand internally, like Microsoft is doing, you will not see the brand of Microsoft in the balance sheet of Microsoft, but you will see the value of the brand LinkedIn. So it's a disparity between what you have developed yourself, Microsoft, which is much more valuable, and the brand uh, LinkedIn on the balance sheet of Microsoft. Now, apart from that, that's more the technicalities around it from an accounting perspective. But so the value of a brand is is, is determined by the future ability of a brand to generate more revenues than a comparable brand or a non-branded company. So it's about the price premium on the one hand, and then the, the amount of revenue that you can, and they calculate that back to the net present value. And basically, this is the same what you do if you value companies. You look at the future value of the profits, you calculate that back to the value today, and brand valuation is exactly the same, but the only difference is that it's only related to what the influence, the role of brand is in the total company valuation. And well, according to brand finance, around close to 20%. So, and then of course, there is 10 different people who have different opinions on how to do that because there's a lot of discussion. But if I look, if I want to buy Apple stock today, I can also get 10 analyst opinions. Five will tell me I have to buy, three will tell me I have to hold, and two will tell me I have to sell. So that's the same people with a lot of education have different opinions on how you buy stock. That's the same discussion in the whole space of brand valuation. But it does make it difficult because the brand valuation space is much less known and developed than uh, how you value stock on the stock market. That's quite well organized with even with people like Moody's and Fitch, uh, what have you, to do ratings for you. So it makes your life easier. Anyway, it's yeah. a bit off track. But, no, uh, no. Yeah. Well, you know what? That's so interesting because I, I didn't know that. And if I had known that when I was thrown into rebranding, that would have been great because then I could have proven much more. It was like an intuitive mm. thing that you had to talk to. But I think that's wonderful that you can actually do that with brand equity. But so when you look now, like with uh, coronavirus and everything, and you're seeing brands right now, and we mentioned like that Scott Galloway was the best-selling author of four and is also a um, stern professor on marketing. He says brands are dead and you're working in branding and rebranding. And, uh, and yeah. it really stopped me when I heard that podcast by Jim Stengel, the CMO podcast. And I was like, wow, what do you think of that? Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for asking. I like that. I mean, I think what he said is that branding is dead. He didn't say that brands are dead. Um, and the reason why it's important is that of course Scott is an American and for Americans certainly if you look back branding was advertising so what he means is totally correct by the way so what he means if he says that branding is dead is that the world for for 30-40 years uh, back was quite 
simple or monolithic or analog, if you wish, in a sense that if you were good at advertising and you knew very well how to decode the DNA of a brand and use that specifically for uh, a segment in the market or markets, then you would be able to to do a winner-takes-it-all strategy. So if you sell the best hygiene product, you market it best and you find the real uh, the coding for the branding and you're profitable with that, you can in- invest more in advertising so you can increase the share of voice, which is the relative spend towards others. So if you get the code right and you have the ability to spend more because you're successful, you can keep doing that for 20, 30, 40 years. Now, that's why he says branding is dead because branding is no longer about advertising. I mean, the, oh, okay. the, the, the way brands communicate with audiences is totally changed. Of course, it's a, it's a multi-channel and omni-sensory experience nowadays. And we have the digital uh, ecosystem around us to use so many ways. And well, for the last 20 years, of course, we've seen the rise of social media influence on how brands respond. It's no longer about sending. It's about dialogue. It's about multi-channel. It's about, well, nowadays, it's about brands taking a stand with Black Lives Matter. I mean, in the old world of advertising, you that would be way different uh, in, in expressing your message. This kind of what you mentioned, organic brand. Is that what you're saying? That's much more of an organic? You mentioned that. No, but I think branding has become much more fluid uh, due to fluid, the okay. whole uh, yeah, new system that we live in nowadays. Yeah. So with it, so what do you do? It's kind of completely changed right now. Uh, how do you... Well, the way I, mostly when I speak about it, if I speak about brand management, let me put it that way, it used to be fairly uh, analog in the past where you could manage a corporate identity, manage a logo. You could even police a logo. If you were the brand manager in the past, basically you were policing the logo where you would just tell people off they were not using the logo or the color or the wordmark in the right way. You would uh, have some instruments to, well, to say that that's not allowed. And that was that. Whereas nowadays... Corporate identity has evolved to brand experience, which is the whole experience that I get from an organization through all the touch points and channels. So that's how the company speaks, uh, how it behaves, uh, what it looks like, how it responds when I get them on the phone from a call center, how they respond to uh, COVID-19, how they respond to Black Lives. That's all part of brand experience. That's a briefing mechanism. So, It means that the paradigm for how you manage brands has shifted from policing the logo 15 years ago to nowadays having to orchestrate the brand experience, which of course requires a totally different skill set. And I think if you you go back to to Scott's uh, talking about branding is uh, that, I think that's a similar way of saying it uh, in different, using different language. So you're an orchestrate. That's really interesting. I like that. So we're orchestrating the brand more. Yeah. That is a whole different trait. So are you seeing new kinds of people coming in to brand managers, people that you're working with in the companies? Yeah, I think it requires different skill and more experienced people. Increasingly, you see that people with responsibility for brand are higher up in the organization or their remit is bigger. The challenge, of course, for if you are responsible for a brand in an organization, whether your job title is the the chief marketing officer, the chief communication officer, uh, or the chief brand officer, regardless. It means that you are somewhere high up in an organization, mostly reporting into the board. 
but you do not really control all the touch points and channels because the people are owned by the, by the line managers and by HR. Touch points on all kinds of channels and interfaces are, yeah, are governed by the sales department or by R&D who put out the thought leadership. So if you want to play in that field and you want to orchestrate all those efforts, that is not about uh, managing or controlling or policing the brand anymore. The ways of working for that will also have a, uh, and, and see a lot of change. And we see that every day. How do you think coronavirus is changing the whole sphere? Is it changing anything or? Yeah, well, there's a, there's a variety of impacts as, as a result of that. So I, I published a few articles about how the world will change after uh, COVID and the, the Page Society, that's the Global Association of Chief Communication Officers published two of those articles. I'll just mention a few elements of it. So what we see, for example, in France is that Air France will get state support and the state is asking specifically from Air France to no longer fly short distance in France if you can also do that by train. So it means that the French state is helping them but they put conditions in place. And it means that the state between, uh, so the contract between the state and businesses is changing. You have also seen a whole array of privatizations going on in the world of energy and utilities. And you can see with all the dynamics changing due to something like COVID-19, that governments will reassess Reprivatized things that we thought were a good idea a few years ago or 10 years ago, was that the right thing to do? Another element is the, the hyper-connectedness that we have. I mean, we want to be able to order everything from China at the lowest cost. I mean, I can only tell you, but uh, we, this is, I have a standard in my hand for my iPhone, and I bought it for €1.50 from AliExpress, and it got shipped to me for €1.50 from China. Until recently, I wouldn't care about how they did that, where they got it, but it's the same with, uh, I buy fish in the supermarket. Uh, there's, there's new sorts of fish like tilapia, filet it's called in the Netherlands. It's cheap fish from China. And COVID has, has made people realize like, I want my food from where I know it's coming from. Definitely not from far away. So, so the whole hyper-connectedness, having things cheap, having everything just in time is also something we learned. If, you, if there's no slack in the value chain, of supply chain, then you will run out of stock for things that are more important than you, well, like toilet paper. So the whole concept of just-in-time, total automation of the value chain, the geographical distance to the source, I mean, politically, this creates more nationalism and more protectionism. So, and this is, yeah, this, of course, if you, if you are in the space of brand and branding, you have to be very aware of this type of changes. Um, if I look at how we, uh, we've been buying online like crazy, if we buy online, a lot of people buy their stuff uh, from having Alexa or Google Assistant in the home. If I buy something with my voice, so if you look at voice control devices like talking to your car to the Navi system or talking to Alexa in the home, if I need new batteries for my uh, remote control of the TV, it will not ask me, it will not give me like seven brand names and I can choose from one of seven. No, it will ask me, do you want Amazon Prime batteries for the remote controller or do you want Duracell? 
Because oh, wow. a, a voice interface, it will not list seven things. I mean, they will, the algorithm will, will be set up in a way that there's only two choices. It means that if you are a somewhere mid-range brand, not to achieve fairly good performance, you will no longer be in the, the set of choice uh, in these type of devices. So the automation, that's my overarching, the automation and increased digitalization is changing the role of brand at the point of purchase, of, of conversion or transaction. If I go to the supermarket, I go to a shop on the highway to buy petrol, I see shelves with stuff. But in the digital world, I don't, as a brand owner, I do not own the shelf anymore. If I, if I look for something on Google, Google Shopping is giving me the options. If I do not know how to do that, I'm out of business. If I don't have the money, if I don't want to pay for it. So for a brand, if you look at the, the whole funnel around brand in, in terms of how you create engagement and loyalty and advocacy as a brand, your influence at the moment of conversion, I think, will go down. But your influence in the moment of engaging and loyalty and delivering customer experience, for example, at the moment of delivery, will in, yeah, that, that's where you will see the new opportunities of, of the influence and the role of brand. So, yeah, so it's a lot of words. No, it's a whole mind shift. Yeah. That's really fascinating. So you're basically, that's you're really true because if it's a voice... So the new technology is actually limiting the choice where branding is even more important because you have to be in the top two. Yes. In the most simple terms, that's what I think. Yeah. Wow. That's pretty interesting. That's a whole mind shift. So companies now should even think more about investing in their brands to make sure it engages to their fans or to their clients. Yeah, they should. But then I think investing in more investing in brand is not the right language if the world is in crisis. Right. I think it's more about revisiting, if you see what are the changing and the changes in the world, how is the customer decision-making process changing as a result of that? And if that means you have to revisit uh, how you yeah, brand yourself, then I think that's more compelling than talking about investing in brands because people will always say that's a cost and you, that's a difficult conversation mostly. So it's yeah. revisiting. Oh, that, that's, a, that's, a, that's a nice reframe. Well, that's really fascinating. But I want to go back to more of your personal life because you've been so successful. It's been really impressive. You started from a startup. You have education from INSEAD you took later on on marketing. And what I really think is interesting, you took NLP practitioner to understand more the psychology. Yes. I really think that's fascinating. And when you look at your career, what would you say are the defining traits for you to be as successful as you have been? Mm. Well, I think definitely the two founders of our company. I mean, I was uh, at KPMG, I was a rational blue person. I was good at it, but rational blue, all about the IQ and not the EQ, so to say. So communication with people uh, is something that, of course, I could do, but it was not the greatest skill. And I think the founders of our company really taught me that. And uh, a lot of the time uh, in those days, uh, confrontational. I mean, because I was not easy to convince. But of course, they were they were my bosses, so I, I, I had to listen. But I was, yeah, fairly hard-nosed in that. And it was only when I, I at some point, again, had well confrontations with one of my bosses that I took coaching, uh, a personal coach, because uh, my boss wouldn't, of course, he would be there. <laughs> and if I wanted to work with him, I had to find a way. So I took coaching more than once, 
That's why. And, and that helped me tremendously. And after that, so one of those coaches put me, and this was a period of two, three years, was, and I was early 30s, mid-30s maybe. He recommended me to, to look at uh, doing an NLP practitioner course. So I remember going four weekends for three days into a farm, and uh, yeah, we had a retreat there, and that changed my life a lot. So I think it's been a journey, but really to look at how other people are, are organized internally, whether they're kinesthetically, visually, or auditively oriented, to be able to see that and then to be able to adapt and hit, adhere to that makes such a huge difference in the, in the communication between people. And, and to me, I think that's really changed me over time as a person. I mean, that's, yeah, of course, not for me to say you should ask others, but <laughs> if you ask me what is pivotal, I think that it's been that time where there's been a lot of stress and a lot of change. And I'm very grateful for that. It wasn't easy at the time. But you changed. Yeah. And so when you look back, what are like three words or three lessons that you would tell someone else that's either in a startup or are really working hard to make something as successful as you have done? As an entrepreneur, I mean, for me, that came later. I didn't start off as an entrepreneur. We, we bought the company at some point, uh, like I, I told you. I mean, there's a few things. I've always learned from, from my father, basically, that if something doesn't work, you just have to work harder. <laughs> just, it's, not, it's not about running away when it's tough or difficult. If it's not working, you have to look in your own mirror and you have to go like, okay, more, <laughs> do more, <laughs> do harder. Yeah, I mean, and that's not what, of course, I know that it's not what is the normal behavior for most people. I'm not saying it's the right thing to do, but it's, it's how I'm wired. Another thing is to just, especially in entrepreneurship, you make a lot of, I made a lot of mistakes. I've always been saying to people that I'm the most expensively trained employee of the company because I made the biggest and the most expensive mistakes by doing things. And trying them, even if you think about it as well as you can. And, and one of the things that we also say nowadays to each other with my, my partners with whom I run the business, just never look back. We do it. We think it's the best thing to do given the circumstance. If it doesn't work, we adapt and we move on. And it's not about looking back and saying, hey, I did this, you did that. It doesn't help. It's of no help. So... Um, yeah, I'm sure if you gave me more time, I would have more ideas about but that, those are the that's, first two things that's lovely. to my mind. I just can't believe we're almost at the end. I was like, oh, I could go yeah. on for another hour with you. I'm going to have to have you come back. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> but um, when, when, you're thinking, when you're thinking right now, what are some hacks or some technology or something that use that's made your life easier or uh, maybe a software, something that you'd like to share with our listeners? Well, I think if you have to, if you want to develop yourself, you need curiosity. So I read a lot. I, I eat information all the time. And secondly, I can do that because I have always learned if you want to develop yourself, you have to delegate. So I will always ask myself, do I have to do that? Or is, have, is someone in my environment able to do that? And if they are, I'm happy for them to do it. To me, that's been very stimulating. Uh, And I think it's also been stimulating for my direct environment. Yeah, I think that will be my answer. Mm. Okay. And then my last question is this. When you look at a commercial, a quote, something's really impressed upon you throughout. Is there anything you can come up with? 
Well, I, when I see quotes, I can love them, but I am back to where I started. I am still a rational blue person. So it's not, there's, there's not a lot of peaks and downs in me. It's mostly fairly flat line with small ups and small downs. So I'm not, I cannot be overexcited about things. I can appreciate them when I see them, but yeah, there's no real peak in that. Neither is there a real down. Sorry. <laughs> so that's the blue in you. But how yes, did you, I then I'm going to ask you, how did you go from a blue to a little bit more red or emotional? How did, is it the NLP or was it just? I think it's been the, the, yeah, the whole journey with uh, having confrontations with my bosses. Uh, and they and then re- they really showing me that I could do things differently if I was open to to adapt. Then to go the journey through coaching and NLP, really all, all the work on the soft side and who you are and how communication works. I, I think that's been fascinating for me. And uh, I also think that my wife. I mean, typically don't talk about my family uh, publicly, but uh, my wife is very much a feet on the ground person, and uh, that's. That's really been a tremendous help through the years because sometimes you lose yourself and you think you can fly in the air, but that's not the case. So and she's always... But she grounds you. Yes. That much. is lovely. Well, Mark, I just want to thank you so much for your time. This has been so educational for me and I know my listeners are going to really love it. So thank you for your time and I wish you a wonderful vacation because you're heading off. And so thank you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure, Torrent. Have a good day. Thank you. Yeah, bye. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you know at least one or two friends that would get a lot of value from this, send this episode or text a couple of your friends right now to WhatsApp group, post it on your Instagram stories, Facebook or Twitter. And don't forget to tag me at Torin B. Share with anyone you think that needs to hear this message. And if you're new, please pop on over to your favorite podcast app and subscribe. Leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. And how can we prove and make this better? Or how did this help you? And don't forget to join us next week for another episode of Moving Beyond Acronyms.